The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode five of season four of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week is the first of a two-part interview I did with the great legendary engineer and studio owner, John McBride. John is the founder of Blackbird Studio in Nashville, and he is also the institutional director of the Blackbird Academy, which is an incredible online resource where you can learn from the masters about engineering, mixing, microphone placement, working with artists, a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage, all of that's available for subscription over at theblackbirdacademy.com. You should definitely go check that out. So let's get to the interview. Um, we talk about everything from how he gets artists comfortable in the studio to selecting gear to everything. So let's, it covers the entire gamut, and this was super fun. So let's get to part one with John McBride. <laughs> Every time I hit record in, in the studio... She comes yeah, over right. and says, recording in progress. Everybody <laughs> do you have gets any, more nervous. Do you have any tricks to get people to, to kind of dial it in when you hit record? You know, it's funny. Uh, the great thing about the studio and the horrible thing about the studio is this, in theory, is forever. Mm-hmm. And if you let that psych you out, and, you know, fortunately, the quality of players in Nashville it's amazing. And these guys and girls rise to the occasion every time they step in the studio. And, you know, there's nothing like recording the whole band at the mm. same time. And, yeah, we'll do overdubs later. We'll add that didgeridoo or whatever the hell they want. You know. <laughs> didgeridoo. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you never know. They had a little Australian influence or something. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> But no, you know, honestly, it's I'm pretty laid back. I'll tell when I'm recording with uh, students at the Blackbird Academy, every time I step in that studio, I want it to be the greatest thing that that has ever been recorded. You know, Mm -hmm. I want it to sound the best it possibly can, you know, from the, the downbeat. You get the players a little more inspired, and all of a sudden, instead of gold, you're double platinum. Mm. Or instead of not a hit, maybe we have a hit, you know? If anybody knew what a hit was, they would be richer than, you know, Bill Gates, I'm (laughs) sure. How do you deal with that? Like, I know this is a hit, and it just doesn't hit. You just on to the next thing, I guess. You know, it's funny because in mo- in some award shows, they have Song of the Year, which is strictly about the song, whether it's a piano vocal or a, an acoustic vocal or whatever. And then there's Record of the Year, which means how did you take that song and turn it into a great listening experience? It's mm. better where the record is better, it makes the song better. When you have a great song, you could almost do anything. Mm -hmm. You could record it on a cassette deck in your grandmother's garage, and it's still a great song. Mm -hmm. So that's a rule that that, um, everybody knows. But nonetheless, we're going to take any song we tackle 
and try to make it a great record. That's right. the key, you know? Yeah, I guess you can't control marketing and timing, and that's that's out of your yeah. hands. Yeah. Or what people love, you know? Yeah. And, you know, if I asked one of my kids or anybody, what is it about that song? It's almost impossible for them to describe why they love this song so much. But, you know, there's obvious things. Obviously, the lyrics are way important to me. The uh, energy and the, the uh, emotion that the vocalist has, man, that makes a lot of difference. Because when you listen to any words, the more inspired the speaker is, probably the more it hits you. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I listen to music is for emotion. You know, I love, I love that it'll make me cry, it'll make me laugh, it'll make me mad, it'll make me, you know, feel like somebody understands what I'm going through or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I just but, sent a recording that I did for a friend of mine to another friend to check out, and it's a real frantic thing. Yeah, and he got back to me. He says that is the perfect encapsulation of anxiety. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I guess that's an emotion you sometimes want to evoke. <laughs> I, you know, you want to. I'm sure maybe there's some drug company out there that'll use it for their. Uh, <laughs> the commercial will start off with that, and then it goes into some, you know. Yeah, Prozac. Yes. <laughs> Bach or Beethoven or Mozart thing at the end, you know, or yeah. Because, I mean, I'm sure you've done this when you're watching a scary movie. If you mute the sound, all of a sudden, it's not quite so scary, you know. True, yeah. The power of those, you know, what would Jaws be without dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
even when I'm tracking, I can be, um, you know, I'm just listening to the song and making sure the balance is, is good enough, you know, and, and uh, I'll find later if I'm mixing that same project, oh, the piano did, and the next section, the acoustic answered that part. Mm. You know, and you start to see this kind of weaving of music and the way it complements itself or there's a call and an answer and you go, this is unbelievable. I love this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure that little lick and the answer to it from whoever is in there and people mm. hear it because they'll go, wow, one person did this and then the other person answered. And you know what? The whole thing rises, you know, it starts getting better and better. And when you don't record with the whole band, you don't get those spontaneous emotional things that, that happen. And I really love that's why I really love cutting with at least four or five people, mm. you know, and, and pocket. That's another thing. The feel, you know, it's a group effort. It's not just bass and drums. It's, you know, it's everyone kind of moving in the same way. And that is that's just what makes your head go like this. And mm -hmm. you don't realize why, but that's what happens. I'm going to get some water. <laughs> okay. So does that allow for what would be considered possibly a mistake in an overdub session that allows more of those to kind of get through and keep it human and keep it natural just because everyone might move a little bit together or whatever might happen? Well, what happens a lot of the time, which really I think is detrimental to music in a way, is when you grid everything, when you have a, you know, when everyone's listening to the click. And when you're listening to the click, sometimes the, the what, what the song is doing, the click gets in the way of that. You know, I'm not one of these people that likes perfect time. I mean, I don't like imperfect time necessarily. But let's say here comes the chorus and everybody loves the chorus. And they might speed up a little bit because they're excited because here comes the chorus. And then that's, that's emotional. Mm -hmm. Here comes the bridge. It's depressing, man. <laughs> and they slow down a little more than than you know you would have if you were on a clip mm. but that is emotional and i might not be able to tell you yeah that thing slowed down too much but god i was in tears you know it just really moved me and uh so i like or also, I like to say that music's perfect in its imperfection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are hundreds and maybe thousands of happy mistakes that have been made in music. And guess what? 
like Miles Davis said, the record's perfect. I don't care if it's out of tune, out of time. What we did that day and we all agreed on, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. So now don't put a metronome on it because <laughs> you'll be disappointed if you wanted to stay in time. <laughs> but you know what? It shouldn't be in time sometimes. That's the beauty of music. The other thing is, it's all subjective. Mm -hmm. What I love, someone else might hate, and what someone else loves, I might hate. I don't know. Yeah, I try. I try when I listen not to be too analytical about it. You know, really, did I get? Did the emotion come through between the vocals and? what everybody was playing and if it did oh man that's the payoff that's mm -hmm. all i care about i mean i don't know about you but i've heard a song a hundred times before and one night i'm driving and it comes on and it really hits me like a ton of bricks harder than it ever has yeah, what should, is up with that? That's a, that's that's an anomaly of music, right? <laughs> that yeah. happens often. Records, Maybe I feel like I know inside and out. Sting yes. songs, all of a sudden I'm crying. Like, what in the world is going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's probably has something to do with the day we had or the particular mindset we're in at the moment. But, you know, certain, like the Beatles, they could hit me way more often than other people do, mm -hmm. I, you know. There's something in our DNA that just feels right. And I always describe the Beatles music as it hit me in the DNA. Mm. That's a good thing. So how often do artists or bands not record with a click anymore that you, that you work with? Rarely do they not use a click, yeah. you know? Is that... Even though I, I've, seen, I've seen certain people actually change the tempo mm -hmm. throughout the song and with technology now it can be this bpm or this time signature for the first chorus and it changes on the next verse or whatever and that's kind of great mm -hmm. you know one thing that kind of worries me you know i've got three kids and they listen, what they hear is pretty much perfect time. Uh, I won't say, I shouldn't use the word perfect, but it's lined up, every kick, every bass drum note is with a bass guitar also, you know, they're just perfect together. And when it's not perfect, to me, a lot of the time, that's more emotional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't want them to be after learning or hearing music the same way their whole lives, even though most kids, they'll get into either some older music or, you know, they go from listening to rock to listening to jazz and really enjoy both. Mm. So I'd say... 90% of the music recorded is to a click. And if you put it on a grid, it'd probably be, you know, mm, not bad. Mm. You know? And, uh, but the question is at the end of the day, 
did the song hit you? Mm-hmm. you know? Did it? Could it change your life? Because that's what music does. It does change the world. It has so much power. Mm-hmm. Hopefully AI won't figure out all that. Uh, I don't think it ever will. I mean, yeah, I don't think so either. That now, I, <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> if you program in the amount of crazy songwriters are. Right. And the nuance gonna, of the gonna, crazy. <laughs> it's it's going to destroy itself, you know? <laughs> yeah, AI drug addiction or whatever it might end up developing. No kidding. <laughs> I've, I've never been any kind of a uh, conspiracy theorist or any of that. But I read a couple of articles about AI, that went, and I went, oh, my God. <laughs> hey, I we, use it to help me write product descriptions, so oh, I'm as guilty as anybody else. <laughs> it's like the Internet. It's really beneficial in some respects, and it's really kind of evil in, uh, in other respects. You <laughs> That's know? true. So until we can get people to not be evil, that'll never happen. Yeah, that's just human nature. What do we your kids to, think of like Jimi Hendrix or something that's just so imperfectly perfect? Oh, yeah. No, you know what? They love it. Mm. They do. Okay. Well, then there's hope. <laughs> there is. Oh, absolutely. At the end of the day, we're all human. We're not that different than we were 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. You know, mm. I read a quote one day about and I didn't know who had written it. And it was talking about, ah, the youth today. They don't have any respect for their elders and this and that. And I thought, well, this is obviously somebody current. And I got to the end of it and it was Socrates. You know? Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, a couple thousand years ago. Things really haven't changed that much. <laughs> That's why it's so hard to, you know, you hope we keep moving towards a more enlightened, you know, society but wow you know it doesn't happen very that, much yeah that's like our quest to break the the light speed barrier it's just not possible we'll, right. we'll never be fully enlightened and we'll never be able to time travel let's just get over it <laughs> yeah how about life's hard get a helmet let's go yeah right okay, you know Enjoy it. <laughs> let's I mean, talk I, I, oh go ahead okay, i'll say um like what would since we're talking about imperfect perfection Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. What does a keeper rhythm take for you? Well, the funny part is, like anything, the more you're around it, the more you work with it, the more you do what you do, the more aware you become of what makes you happy. Mm. If the playing on a record doesn't distract me from the lyric or the uh, vocal, yeah. you know, um, then initially 
I just look at the song as a whole and you know they we we start we end the song and if the song came through in that recording I'm going to pay more attention to that particular take nothing distracted me there weren't enough weird time changes that happened whether intentional or not you know and there'll be often be times where someone will be singing a line and you'll think hmm for a second that was a little odd or whatever now maybe it was flat maybe it was sharp maybe it was just the timing of the lyric but when something slightly distracts me i know in theory there could be a problem mm -hmm. we're gonna have to look at that line you know in in the future mm -hmm. and if it's something that the singer felt or or any of the players felt we never or rarely does has anyone ever done one take and that's it you know mm -hmm. so the the crazy thing is that we can just kill ourselves with the minutiae of, you know. And one thing in Nashville that happens too often is we will overdub and overdub and overdub mm -hmm. and fill up every ounce of space, you know. And there are times that really it's the space between the notes that kind of grab you, you know, or just the way it feels, man. And when you when you hear a band that that is has played together a lot and and that and it just it just moves and you feel great that's a real enjoyable experience at least mm -hmm. for me i've i've seen live performances that i'd put up against any record i ever heard you know mm -hmm. and you know again we're subjective so <laughs> Is that part of your role as producer or even engineer to kind of like let everyone know, hey, we're, we're good. Let's not do anymore. Like resist the urge to put another guitar on this, please. Right, sure. <laughs> um, you know, I, I rarely produce because my respect for producers is huge. And I love engineering. Mm. And hopefully I work with a producer that loves what I love. And then we end up making a lot of records together. Uh -huh. I've never been vain enough to really try to produce a record. I just prefer to leave that to people that have that gift, mm -hmm. you know? Number one, most producers do play an instrument. Most producers can communicate really well with the band, you know, when, when, cause you know, playing, you have, your own vocabulary to a degree. You know, I love it. I need it a little more blue. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking, God. <laughs> In my head, of course, I'm going, what the fuck have we gotten ourselves into now? Oh, I didn't know. Can I cuss on this thing? Of course. <laughs> of course. I tend to cuss more than I should. I don't know why. It's just. We're all adults. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell classes at the academy that. Because of, you know, I'll drop four or five F-bombs in the first five minutes and I'll go, by the way, I'm sorry if this cussing really bothers you, but if it does, you might consider another profession because people in music cuss. I'm just telling you, <laughs> that's this true. is the way it works. I don't know why. 
course, a lot of accountants cuss too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, you know, it's so <clears throat> funny because having the right attitude, and in a, you know, I always say that you know, music. When you get to work in music, what better situation could there be? Uh, you know, I'll make the bad joke that like sex and pizza, even when it's bad, it's pretty good. You know, <laughs> I just love working in music and I have a lot of respect for the people that are in the room with me, whether I've worked with them before or not. I assume they're there because they're capable of doing what they do. And mm -hmm. maybe the artist loves these players or maybe the producer loves these players. So I'm going to go in there with a great attitude thinking. We're going to make a great record. Mm -hmm. And that's a great feeling. You know, it's kind of like having a kid and it grows up, you know, in the 30 days it took you to take that song from start to finish mm. between tracking, overdubbing, editing, putting on harmonies, putting on, you know, maybe a different solo, doing this, doing that. One, one hard thing about working in music when you're in the studio, especially when you're doing a whole album, you'll work on it and you are so inspired by this record. It is so great. And you know, it's going to be six, eight, 10 months before anybody hears one song, you know, <laughs> there's no immediate gratification at all outside of the fact that, you know, you did something well. That day. <laughs> Do you get the same satisfaction when you finally hear it? Or is it like a whole different experience? You know, and okay, here's another weird thing that I would think because this has happened to me. Every radio station or streaming service, they handle the processing of that music differently. The amount of compression they put mm -hmm. on any tonal adjustments they might make. Some stations sound better than others to mm -hmm. me. So, and the funny part is, good old FM radio still sounds better than streamed radio. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on how much that matters to you. And then you even, but some of the higher tech streaming you know, where they get into multi-channel or a higher sample rate or whatever they do. You know, the the actual quality of the sound of, of radio or streaming really hit a low, but it was probably five or 10 years ago. And, but people, I guess what I'm trying to say is when an MP3 became perfectly acceptable, I felt like, we're in a low point. You mm -hmm. know? I'm one of these people that appreciates great balances in mixing, great tone where the amount of low end works perfectly with the amount of high end. And, and you know, in the low mids, it's not cloudy. Obviously, they sculpted this thing to come out the way it did. And, uh, I think the higher quality at which you experience music, the more emotional it becomes. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been on my computer and oh, somebody sent me a song and I listen to it just over the little computer speakers and I go, hmm, yeah. 
And then a week later, I hear that in a control room. I go, oh, God, this song's killing me, you know. It's funny, you know, but it really, it really is. It, it just what affects the emotion. And a great playback, man, that's kind of really, really nice. So one what of the is, reasons I like ATC speakers, I, they're bigs. You know, I like the 300s. Hmm. I feel like that speaker sounds pretty damn good, no matter what you put through it. What are your thoughts on the Atmos experience? I've been in a couple studios, and it's it's like going to the movies, but you're listening to music. I don't know if I liked it, but oh. it was an experience. Here's the problem. There's a lot of bad Atmos mixes. Mm. There are great ones, too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, and, of course, here at Blackbird, I'm such an emotional cripple. We have to do it as good or better than it's ever been done. <laughs> I'm willing to go to Fair the enough. <laughs> power of stupidity in order to make this experience a little bit better, you know. So what we did when we did an Atmos room uh, initially, we used all ATC speakers. That was critical, I felt. Not all the same model. We have some smaller, you know, like 100s over our heads and maybe on the sides and rears. We used 300s in the front. And um, because even in Atmos, the front is still important. Although there are songs, for instance, Beck, Seventh Heaven. He told his engineer when he mixed it, no lead vocal in the front. So you're in the room, you close your eyes, and you hear this vocal behind you. It's great. Mm. I love it. I love mm. it. Okay. You almost have to re-listen or relearn how to listen when it comes to Atmos to really start appreciating some of the more subtle things that happen in it. And yeah, it's still kind of in its infancy. The difference between an Atmos room at a studio or a home and an Atmos experience like with Dolby theaters, in those theaters, every speaker has to hit every seat. You mm -hmm. don't have the perfect spot. And yes, it can be interesting and fun and crazy listening in there. But in a studio, there is, here is the perfect spot. And you can put any sound anywhere in that room, above you, behind you, mm -hmm. you know, even below you. And with the, uh, they've, they've kept improving the software all the time. And, and when you mix in Atmos, or in Sony 360 for that matter, you end up with a really impressive, fun experience. I always walk out of the Atmos room going, fuck stereo, man. <laughs> right. But, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I have said I like to go in there 20 minutes a day just for therapy, you know, just to make you feel good. Because yeah. it really, really is. When it's great, it's really great. And, you know, I encourage people, I'll play a demo like Dolby's put together a couple of demos. I'll play these short little pieces. I'll go, just close your eyes and, and listen to what's going on around you. And it's amazing, you know? All of a sudden we have 
all these different things going on, and it makes it more interesting mm-hmm. to listen. But I've seen a lot of tears in that room, too. People come in, you know, even on Rocket Man, which has probably been number one on the Atmos playlist forever. But Rocket Man's a great song. And when the background vocals come in and they're not in front of you, they're beside you and behind you and above mm-hmm. you. Man, I've seen people just go, oh. <laughs> or maybe that was a song they broke up to on, you know, in yeah, high school. Yeah. I don't know. I don't does that affect the way you engineer, in particular, like a drum set? Like, is it is it? Are you thinking about Atmos now when you're engineering? You know what? No, not yet. I think I can be in a regular stereo type session, and there will be certain things going on. And now I do think, oh, this in Atmos. Mm. This thing's gonna should happen over here, and it should the answer should be over here, and and we're really gonna blow that listener's mind. You know, that's the key. Mm. Part of the problem with why the mixes may not be as as great as I'd like is that a lot of the labels and people that you know make these mixes happen, they don't allow it enough time to really experiment but because mm. with an Atmos mix I could spend a month on it I mean that's the horrible part but no one can afford that mm-hmm. that won't happen because you know we, we don't have that kind of time it can't cost us 20 grand to remix a song right and, and another thing that kind of shocked me was a lot of Atmos mixing is done by a completely independent third party or whatever. They usually don't bring in the person that mixed the song originally. Mm-hmm. And I think they should or could because that person's going to know more about that song and what it took to get what. And and when you're in the studio and the artist goes, oh, God, the way this happens for, and with that, you know, that was very important to that artist. And this third person has no idea of any of that history, you know? Mm -hmm. So the age-old battle, you know, how do we get a better budget to do our project? Yeah, yeah. My wife has never turned in a record on budget. (laughs) And, you know, even if we had to pay the overage, whatever. Budget goes out the window when you're an artist because... You know what you want to put out there. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to get it? You know, how much did you spend? You really need a 40-piece orchestra on this, you know? <laughs> Those orchestra sessions are expensive. And they're so grand. You know, it's so great when you're putting strings on a song. And when you're recording it, the strings are loud and they're full of glory and power and all this. And by the time you get the mix done, it could have been a friggin', you know, bit of a keyboard. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> We've taken all the majesty out of these strings, man. Yeah. <laughs> but recording strings, oh, it is, it's so great and so fun to be able mm. to do that. You know, so, cellos could be easily 
as emotional as an electric guitar or a saxophone. But you so, know, so did you guys open Blackbird so you could make sure her records were as good as they could be? Was that the main reason? You know, I always felt like we could make working with Martina live and just being with her. I've done probably 3,000 live shows with her. So I know that girl's voice mm -hmm. like the back of my hand. And I know how wonderful and emotional and powerful and it, it's, it's mind-blowing. And so I always felt like, did they really capture the essence mm. of this girl, you know? And of course, no. I mean, George Martin and McCartney could be co-producing a Martina record, and I probably, I don't know that I'd still be happy with the vocals. <laughs> <you know. clears throat> Part of that is the fact that I've, you know, done this for way more than 10,000 hours. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? The tone of a vocal is half of it's what God gave you. And the other half is, okay, let's say some, especially with female vocals, 3.15K is my least favorite frequency anywhere. Mm. And to me, it's kind of like an ice pick in my forehead. And I've heard some female vocals that have that in a big way. Mm. And it's not comfortable for me to sit there and listen to it. But, you know, through all the processing we have available to us today you know the the you know where there are even compressors that are frequency based i'm going to set at 3.15k a lower you know uh, when she sings it's going to be compressing that section of the eq so that she just sounds more big and warm and you know and I, I it doesn't sound like nails on a chalkboard or an ice pick going into my forehead <laughs> you know there, there there are so many things I'm really I can hear a singer and and pick the vocal chain I would use and it would make that person happier than they've ever been I mm. and everyone else too it's funny one time <laughs> Steve Jordan was in here and he was producing a Cheryl Crow record and Cheryl has a great studio at her own house. So they'd done 99% of it there, but they needed to record strings. So they came here and during the day, this wasn't planned, but during the day, Steve goes, hey, she wants to do one vocal here. I go, Steve, don't do it. <laughs> I go, I know where this we're is gonna going to make her so much happier here than she is with what she's already recorded and being married to an artist i know this is gonna happen and he goes ah oh no i'm not worried you know so of course i gave her we gave her the martina vocal chain and three weeks of rental of that chain at her house she redid every vocal on that record and in a way it just makes me respect her more because obviously She's thinking about what's, you know, this sound is more like what I envision on my records. And I want to do that because I want to give people the most 
emotion I could give them, you know, mm -hmm. for that when they listen to that song. And, you know, to me, growing up, I was more of a melody guy. I'm, I, you know, I want to hear some guitar. I want to hear some anger. I want to hear, you know, a great bass sound and all mm -hmm. this. And I want a melody that I can actually hum. And I met Martina, and she is 100% a lyrics person. Now I'm 100% a lyrics person also. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, you know, think about it. Bob Dylan, he, he's not going to win, you know, The Voice. You know, Never. he's not, he's not going to come out number one. But the words he sings, I don't know how many millions and millions of records this guy sold. But he put the right words. And, you know, when the words are right, how important is the actual singing part? Mm, interesting. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, writing words like he does is, that's that's really shows you how important lyrics are you know mm -hmm. and that that you can you can influence and change the world with the right words because the words he writes everyone gets it and you know shakespeare had that you know mm -hmm. there are certain people that had a way with words and the creativity to use them in a way that you'd never really considered. And it blows your mind. And I like that. I like mm -hmm. to get my mind blown. You know? I wonder if some of your favorite drummers have the same mindset, like lyrics are paramount or, you know, have you ever had that conversation with a drummer? You know what's funny? I've talked to many, many, many players especially here in Nashville, guitar players, keyboard players, steel, fiddle, whatever, violin, you know, whatever. Whatever, you know, if it's a country session, it's a fiddle. But, and even drummers, they want that vocal in their headphones because they are going to play based on what the lyrics are. Mm -hmm. Whereas somewhere else or someone without as much experience they're going to try to just play this part perfect what's the lyric i don't give a shit i don't know you know mm. and and a player that pays attention to lyrics to me is paramount it's important because that really is going to influence what they play mm. and how they play it and I love that because I'd never even thought of anything like that the first five years of recording or whatever. But then you start to learn, you know, you never stop learning. I have it. So that's the advantage of, of being in music. And you can have a, you can record a record that sells 10 million copies or used to sell 10 million copies and every, and your phone rings off the hook. But the question is, is, that record sold 10 million copies because either the songs were what they were, the producer did what he did, the artist did what they did. And you did your job, but not, but you weren't really contributing from a creative point of view. To mm -hmm. me, being able to contribute from a creative point of view 
and recognizing when that happens in the recording process. That's part of the, the um, just the, like when Dan Huff hears a song. Now this guy's been an artist. He's been a studio player forever. He's been a producer for well over 20 years. Sold millions and millions of records. Made a lot of great records. When he hears a song and anyone else hears a song and you wrote down what you heard, it's going to be 180 degrees. I mean, he's going to bring up things that no one else really can, has considered. Mm -hmm. And that's because he's done this. He keeps an open mind. I remember one time I'm sitting in the kitchen in, in uh, at Blackburn. And Dan comes walking in the kitchen. He goes, man, my records are starting to sound too much alike. Which is hilarious in a way. <laughs> but what happens is you find players you love. Mm. And you're going to use them on every, who you know, I'm going to use these people no matter who I'm recording. Sometimes you have to go out there and jump off the cliff a little bit, maybe. Try some new people. Try some different things. Try a different engineer. Whatever. And you'll learn something in the process and you're going to make something better or you might make it worse. But whatever happens, you'll learn something. That is it for part one of my interview with John McBride. If you like the show, head over to iTunes or Spotify or YouTube, wherever you're consuming this podcast. Give us a five-star rating, write us a review, share it with your friends. We want drummers all around the world to be checking out the show, and we need your help to do that. Also, you can always reach me at drumcandypodcast.gmail.com with show suggestions, guest requests, topics for discussion about gear, and all that. So until next week, have a good one. Go play some drums. See you then.